Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on October 3, 2018, covering PwC's quarterly tax accounting webcast. The panelists for the webcast were Rick Levin, a PwC tax partner and our U.S. Tax Accounting Services Leader, Jennifer Spang, a PwC tax partner in our National Professional Services Practice, and Luke Shervaney, a PwC tax partner, and Tracy Hammond, a PwC tax director, both in our U.S. Tax Accounting Services Practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists on valuation allowance assessments, including key reminders. Have a listen. So let's move on to our next topic, valuation allowances. And this is an area where we've seen a number of issues come up with tax reform, and I would describe it a little bit of a, as a sleeper area. It's not one that initially I would have thought there would have been a lot of discussion or a lot of uh, issues, uh, challenges created because of tax reform when you just think about valuation allowances. It is very complex and judgmental, and so there's already a lot of complexity that goes along with it. But we have seen a number of issues pop up, and I think what we'd like to do, we've got a, I've got several of these questions. So I think what I'd like to do is just go around the table each kind of take your crack at, at answering these. Um, so let's start off with the first one. And Jen, why don't I start off with you thinking about cumulative losses and the impact of tax reform. What can you share there as it relates to value, the challenges that creates an evaluation allowance context? Yeah, cumulative losses are uh, probably the most significant part of every conversation we have around evaluation allowance assessment. And, you know, indeed, it can be a significant piece of negative evidence to overcome. Interestingly enough, the thing I'd probably raise here is just because you have cumulative income doesn't mean you don't need evaluation allowance. And so I think we're seeing a number of companies in a situation where because of tax reform and specifically the toll charge, they may be in a pretty significant cumulative income. But to the extent that those that toll charge actually absorbs some of your assets, so obviously it could be absorbing some FDCs that you had carrying forward, it could be hitting on NOLs you had carrying forward, you know, that's all great. That would have been accounted for in the you know, same period of enactment. But after that, for the deferreds that are left and carrying forward, uh, you really have to step back and say, you know, without that toll charge, would I be able to realize the benefit of these deferred tax assets? Mm-hmm. So I think it's just important, as it is in a cumulative, in- cumulative loss situation, you really have to look at the quality of the earnings. You have to look at what is the totality of your evidence and um, cumulative income shouldn't automatically mean no valuation allowance needed. Gotcha. Okay. So the next issue, Tracy, I'll come to you since you're next in line here. Um, when you think about net operating losses, a you know, number of changes there under tax reform, how is that impacting valuation allowance assessments? Okay. So if we think about tax reform, so tax reform provided that net operating losses generated in tax years beginning after December 31st, 2017 would have an indefinite carry forward period, but they also provided that um, you'd have to, they'd be subject to an 80% limitation. They also wouldn't be eligible for carry back. So when we think about the valuation allowance assessments, these can obviously each have an impact here. So let's first start with the um, indefinite carry forward period. So to the extent that a company has um, taxable temporary differences with an indefinite reversal pattern, companies may now be able to consider those as a source of taxable income for realizing deferred tax assets. So definitely something to keep in mind. Moving then to the 80% limitation, on the other hand, if companies are considering deferred tax liabilities as a source of income for realizing their deferred tax assets, 
the 80% limitation needs to be considered. So for an example, just say you have a $100 deferred tax liability. That $100 deferred tax liability may now only provide um, realization for $80 of a post-reform NOL. So both of these are items to keep in mind. One other point I would add into here is that NOLs from a pre-reform period continue to have the 20-year carry forward period. Mm -hmm. They do have the two-year carry back, and they aren't subject to this limitation. So when you think about companies that have um, both pre-reform NOLs and post-reform NOLs, or those with definite and indefinite carry forward periods, it could be that there's a significant scheduling exercise that's going to be required, and especially when you layer in this 80% limitation and now the availability of indefinite lives and tangibles. There's just a lot to rethink about when it comes to the effect of these new provisions on your valuation allowance assessment. Well, truth be told, I enjoy a good scheduling exercise. <laughs> I know Luke does. I haven't laughed I that hard it. in a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Luke, 163J. <laughs> got that also coming out of tax reform. Another area where you would think there might be some implications on valuation allowance assessments. If nothing else, the broadening of the rules, more people are going to be subject to it. But then also you're going to have potentially these disallowed interest carry forwards, which are indefinite lived as well. So some challenges there is that. Uh, right. So now you're limited to 30% of adjusted taxable income. You do have an indefinite carry forward period. So kind of the same things Tracy was just going through. It's 163J, which is often very complex for companies, but you've got limitations and carry forward um, issues to work through and scheduling may be necessary. Um, before I get to scheduling, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that there's also an interplay, right, between you know, interest deductions and NOL utilization. And then clearly, if you do have a carry forward, um, you need to assess the realizability of that, the deferred tax asset for that carry forward. So we get a question a lot on, well, is scheduling necessary? What factors do I consider when I schedule? Um, you know, scheduling is required if it's not clear that you're going to be able to recognize, realize that deferred tax asset. So it's, if it's not clear, scheduling may be required. So hopefully you're on one of the ends of the spectrum so that your chances are people are going to be in the middle and have to actually do these. Exactly. Um, so, so the fundamentals of scheduling, right, you have your reversals of temporary differences, you have your forecast of future taxable income. You know, as it relates to 163J in particular, um, you know, scheduled debt maturities, tax planning actions, refinancing, um, there's, there's a myriad of complexities or data points, I should say, um, that, that may need to be considered if you're going through a detailed scheduling exercise as to whether or not that carry forward amount is ultimately realizable and if there is a portion or all of that that needs evaluation allowance. Absolutely. Yep. So we talked about NOLs, we talked about 163J, talked about guilty already on the webcast. We haven't talked about BEAT yet. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think, Jen, when you think about BEAT in the way that, and actually Luke earlier talked about this policy election and guilty and NOLs, same kind of thing can be said about B. Yeah, that's right. So um, stepping back for a minute, at year end or when the Q&As that you mentioned earlier came out, one of the Q&As that the FASB released was on BEAT and how you should or whether you needed to consider BEAT when you're measuring your deferred taxes. And the conclusion there was no. Um, there was also a sentence or two in there about how you think about valuation allowances and BEAT. Mm -hmm. And so in that Q&A, what the FASB said is companies uh, weren't required to consider um, the impact of BEAT on their deferred tax assets because those assets were being used, which is indeed true, for regular tax purposes. Uh, so 
while you're not required, we think that companies may, however, um, think about that, and, and they may want to think about that for some of what, uh, Luke, you mentioned earlier, just this idea of if you're recording the valuation allowance and um, because you're not going to realize the benefit of that asset, mm -hmm. having that now versus in the period in which you actually have the beat tax. So that's kind of your difference. So to the extent you were to determine that you wanted to think about the impact beat would have on the realizability, we think the with and without or the incremental that um, Luke mentioned is one way to go, right? So that's really looking at it and saying the asset might be consumed, but did I actually receive a cash tax savings from it? Um, and so if no, you'd record a VA, and if yes, you wouldn't. So very similar in some respects to the guilty conversation, um, but we do think it's another thing that a company can choose to um, consider in different ways. Okay, another area, FTCs. <laughs> Tracy, you know this is coming back to you. Um, Nothing, I mean, we, we had obviously FTCs before, they've changed considerably as part of tax reform. So we've, we've been accustomed to assessing FTCs in evaluation allowance context. How does it look different now? Yeah, sure. So reform um, introduced two new baskets to the FTC regime, right? So now we have, in addition to our general income basket and our passive income basket, we now also have the guilty basket as well as the branch income task. The branch income basket, sorry there. Um, so when thinking first about the general basket and what this may mean, so as a result of these two new baskets, it could mean that there's less foreign source income available to provide a benefit for your guilty basket FTC. So mm -hmm. that's just something to keep in mind as you're going through your uh, realizability assessment. The second point that I'll keep that I'll touch on a little bit more is with respect to branches. So oftentimes companies with branches have recorded the mirror image deferred, and so that's with respect to the um, anticipatory foreign tax credits that will result when you've got the reversal of your local country deferred taxes. So this was similar to the um, the third leg of the three-legged <laughs> stool that Jen discussed earlier. So now, as a result of reform, we've got this um, reduced 21% rate. We now have this guilty income basket. It could be that on an aggregate basis, your branches are now going to be taxed at a rate in excess of 21%. And if that's the case, companies should consider um, if a deferred tax asset or potentially you know, um, a derecognition of a deferred tax asset would be needed um, mm -hmm. for these branch foreign tax credits or anticipatory foreign tax credits that when they are generated are expected to be expired, to go expired unutilized. Sorry, a lot there. Um, one thing that may not be as intuitive uh, is that this could also be applicable when you've got deferred tax liability. So for like the foregone foreign tax credits for say. Mm -hmm. So definitely something to keep in mind, just how this new regime all interacts and interplays with your, with your branch deferred, your branch foreign tax credits as well. Well, a lot of these things that we've been talking about have got a little bit of the gotcha in them, you know, there's kind of the traps for the unwary. If you happen to not be thinking about these, you could all of a sudden, you know, they could peer their ugly head out from around the corner. And the, the, actually, the last one I want to come to you on is exactly along those lines. It relates to unremitted earnings to the extent that that's been relied upon. Right. So in the past, um, companies um, may have not been asserting APB indefinite reinvestment, APB 23. Um, uh, and, and they may have had deferred tax liabilities for the, you know, future repatriations that were being used as a source, you know, to realize deferred tax assets. Now, in the after post-tax reform world, you've had the toll charge, you have 100% DRD, um, those sources from a federal perspective may not be available um, to offset against your deferred tax assets. So folks might want to be thinking about that. Um, I, I guess I'll say as a broad point too on this, we, we hit outside basis differences a lot on our last webcast. We did. We put out, mm -hmm. I'm plugging another white paper that we put out this quarter. <laughs> We've been putting a lot of thought leadership out. 
um, in addition to the deferred considerations on, on guilty. Um, but, but outside basis difference is a topic, um, broadly speaking, that has a lot, of, a lot of things to be thinking about now in the post-reform world. Um, this, is just, this is just one small thing to be thinking about, but there's a lot of other things to be thinking about. So I kind of want to emphasize we've hit on a, a lot of stuff with valuation allowances. We've hit hard on outside basis differences. These are two big areas that we want to make sure we're obviously in Q3. Sitting here, it's already Q4 for calendar companies. Mm -hmm. Year end is coming. So I just encourage folks um, to really be thinking about valuation allowances, outside basis differences, in addition to the my rate of other things that are out there. Yeah, and it, there's a lot of people all thinking about outside basis differences, why we talked about it on our webcast and dedicated a lot of time to it last quarter. But this is one of those things that may be flying under the radar. They're just not, if you're not careful, you could miss. Right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.